Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Welcome back to another edition of the Internet's Most Dangerous Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. It's Wheeler Dealer Radio. I'm your host, Greg, and we're back to talk about, mercifully, a victory for Tottenham Hotspur in the league, no less, this week. Uh, before we get back to that, we have a little bit of podcast business. Uh, please review us on iTunes. Give us five stars because we are wonderful and we are once again asking you to help us out. Also, follow us on our new Twitter account, which isn't really that new at this point, but that's how I'm thinking of it. It's new in a more global sense. Uh, follow us on our Twitter account at WDR Podcast. That's WDR as in Wheeler Dealer Radio. Now let's get to it. Tottenham Hotspur beat Sheffield United 3-1 to this weekend in what was a much better performance than what my Ravens did in the playoffs against the Buffalo Bills. But we're here to talk about winning teams, not losing teams, so let's get into it. Brian... How much did you enjoy this performance coming off of the very disappointing full... Uh, I think Ben wants to get a dig in. Yeah, I mean, we, the Ravens and Spurs scored exactly the same amount of yeah, points. Yeah, so. they did. They did. They, they, I don't they, know how you could be so emphatic about what was better or worse. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine how I could do that. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. Brian, uh, what did you think of this match coming off a very disappointing performance against Fulham in the previous week? Well, I really thought Lamar Jackson should have done a lot better against Fulham. Um, Look, and I, as we established on this podcast's Twitter feed this past week, we are not here to endorse racists and fascists. So if you're going to slander <laughs> Lamar Jackson and out yourself as a racist, that that is your no. that, that could be a problem. Look, you know, it has nothing to do with that. I'm just saying that he he didn't perform well under pressure. Um, and the blitz packages that uh, that Sheffield United threw at him really just flustered him. And how, I just... how how dare you? How, how dare uh, you? <laughs> um, what were we talking about? The Spurs game, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. No, it was good. Honestly, um, you know, it, it was Spurs are. It, it's it's hard this year, and it's been especially hard to do this podcast because like. The problems are still very much the problems, and they go away for a game at a time, and we start to think, like, oh, is this Spurs turning the corner? And you feel good, and then the t- you turn around, and the next week sucks again. Um, so so I don't know, like, globally what this means, but this was a good match. This was We didn't take our foot off the gas. We got up a goal early. Um, we got a second. Um, they eventually got a, a, a response to make it 2-1, and we scored shortly thereafter to make it 3-1. So, you know, this was a game where really we kept the foot on the gas. We we beat a team that is much worse than us. We just haven't done that enough this year. I mean, the Fulham game, Newcastle, uh, you know, we've dropped points in these fixtures so far this season. And so to go out there and actually kind of comfortably beat a team that's worse than us was nice. Well, and you look at this match and I mean, we'll get more into sort of the nuts and bolts of it in a second, but like 
it felt more like how a match like this should feel. Like, yes, Fulham had a little bit of the ascendancy, but it wasn't like an entire half. You know, we didn't completely let up, even though we still let off a little bit. But it, it just felt like, to me, more like how a game like this should go, you know. Two comfortable goals and respond with a wonder goal that might be the best thing you've ever seen <laughs> um, for one of our best players. But, yeah, generally speaking, I, I, even even Ndombele's sort of crazy goal, which is, you know, not something you're going to duplicate, even that came from sort of attacking pressure. Like, that didn't just come out of nowhere. It's not like he whacked that in from the midfield. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, in a lot of ways, this is the kind of response you wanted to see. Like, an emphatic early response and then just not completely sitting back and letting Sheffield pepper us with shots, at least for the, an entire half of football, which I feel like that shouldn't be the ask that it feels like it is, but we got it. We got what we wanted to see after Fulham. Brian, your mic's off, and, and everyone listening, take a drink. <sighs> Damn it. We're just going to hit all the highlights early, huh? Um, I think the thing I liked about this match was we tried something a little different, like just from the start with the formation. We threw out three center backs. We hadn't done that in a while. Um, you know, we got to see Joe Rodon play, um, who I actually think played pretty well. It is, I, I think he's actually going to be a really good player for the first. Um, and, and we went back to a two-man midfield with Hoiberg and Ndombele, and and we got to kind of see the fullbacks getting into more advanced roles, doing some of the more attacking, more marauding stuff that we saw back at the beginning of the season when we were fun. And and you know, Serge Aurier got a goal. Um, Regulon played really well. Um, I liked this formation. I liked this setup. It made the team feel like we were playing less 10 against 11 because you didn't have Musa Sissoko out there. And Steven Bergvine actually, I thought, did some good stuff in this match. Um, so so I, I, it was a different approach just formation-wise. I think we turned it up a little bit more um, in terms of intensity and pressure, and, which we'd seen also in the Fulham game. Um, but it, it, I think the end result was, was more what we wanted, obviously. Yeah, I was really uh, intrigued by the formation as well. We, we tried it against Wolves a few weeks ago, uh, attempting to match their back three with a back three. And what ended up happening was Wolves didn't play a back three. And as a result, um, Jose had to kind of like retool the whole structure of the team on the fly to attempt to match up with what Wolves were doing. And it just didn't work. It neutered, you know, it made Sun and Bergvine as you know, defensive wingers, it, it really neutered the best parts of a lot of people's games to try and compensate for what our opposition was doing. In, in this game, you know, we set out with that plan of a back three and Sheffield obliged, and we were able to play kind of, I think, as as we would have imagined it um, the first time we rolled it out. And I thought it was really beneficial to just so many different players in so many different ways. Um you know, we got to see the fullbacks flying down the wings for the first time in a while. You know, Regulon and Ore were both huge components um, of the attack. Um, you know, we had Bergvine was able to be kind of re- released from his shackles, you know, doing a lot of like the, the scut work and the, and the, you know, the hard, hard yards um, and was able to be a real outlet and, and really contribute. And he was, you know, able to give the assist for the third goal. Um, you know, Ndombele, 
as assist. As air I mean, yeah, assist. Like, and Dombele <laughs> did like insane magic to score it, but like that was a really nice little chip ball over the top. You know that like yes, it took magic to, to turn into a goal, but like. It was a nice attacking move from Bergvine. We just haven't seen a lot of well, And it's also a nice uh, reminder that I, I think at his best, Bergvine is more than just... Uh, ben, you're going to get mad at me for saying this. He's just more than just a, a Dutch Aaron Lennon. Like, I mean, he, he's got more to his game than just running past people. And... Hey, Aaron Lennon had a lot of goals and assists in his time. At <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, and Dombele also got to like run things from midfield instead of like playing you know more advanced in a 10 spot. And it didn't deprive him of his contributions in the final third. You know, he was still able to get on the end of that pass and, and, and you know, close out the game. You know, we, we talk a lot in, in past weeks about the weak links on this team and how Suzuko and Bergwine have been clearly a step kind of behind uh, everybody else on the pitch. And those are the two positions that we've talked about. Like, how do we maximize this? How do we get Lo Celso in for Suzuko to make things better? How do we get, you know, a fit Gareth Bale or a, you know, back in the fold Deli Alley in that third attacking spot to, like, give us a, a third attacker. Um, and really without having to bring in any of those other guys who we imagined to be the solution to this problem, we kind of solved it by just benching Suzoko for an extra center back, you know? And the cascade effect of doing that brought everybody to life in a way that we haven't seen in a while. It felt like we'd been playing in this formation for for, for the whole season, you know, everybody seemed very in sync and everybody was able to kind of do what they wanted to do. Um, I really hope we see it again, not just, you know, situationally against other teams that play a back three. Ben, I'm curious for your opinions on this because you are our most vocal Mourinho hater, although I think Brian joined you in those ranks last week. But, Brian, I want to hear your opinion after this. But how much of this do you think is responsive from Mourinho and how much do you think is just he game plan this way for Sheffield and it kind of worked out. I, cause I, I do feel like, and I haven't, I've never really paid super close attention to a Mourinho team before, but I've been a little surprised by how responsive his lineups have felt for good or for ill this year. It seems like he's responding to, I don't want to say criticisms, but the sort of deficiencies in the squad. You see, there seems to be an awareness of them, even if there's maybe not a plan necessarily how to fix it or a successful plan. But I, I don't know, like this, I, I can't help but feel like we were trying something different after Fulham, but maybe it's just how he thought we should play against Sheffield. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I mean, it's definitely telling that, you know, we started the Fulham game with both Musa Suzoko playing as like an attacking winger and Harry Winks, you know, deeper in midfield. And both of them got excised from the squad. Um, you know, so like, I don't think that's an accident. Um but again, we've only seen this back three a couple of times and only situationally against other back threes or at least imagined back threes. So it's hard to really peg how much of this was, you know, an angry reaction to a bad result against Fulham versus a tactical attempt to outwit one of the worst teams to ever appear in the Premier League. You know, um, given how bad Sheffield United has been, I kind of hope it was more than just like an attempt to outcoach a really bad team and also a recognition of some of the, the flaws and frailties in our side. But I think we won't know until we see what we do against Wickham and against Liverpool in the next week. Um, 
you know, Liverpool aren't going to play a back three. Well, I don't uh, think we're going to know, honestly, but I don't think we're going to know against either of those teams because Wickham, we're probably going to play a pretty weakened 11 against. Um, certainly, you know, I, I don't think he's going to make any great task, tactical master strokes in that game. And I think we're just, we're probably going to play a completely unique or at least specialized style against Liverpool, even if it's what we saw earlier this year. Um, so probably we won't know until after those games. Yeah, I mean, the match after Liverpool is Brighton, who do play a back three. So, you know, it stands to reason whatever happens this week, we may well see it again against Brighton. And if it does work successfully, um, that might be the thing to kind of tip it over into a norm for us. Uh, I mean, if we remember the, the year Pochettino did a back three, it was a little earlier this season. It was like December when we finally hit on that and decided that was the way forward. And it was really successful. Um you know, it's possible that just, and I think, again, that one originated with trying to match up against Watford in a back three, um, and it just worked, and we stuck with it. So it's entirely possible that this situational tactical tweak ends up, you know, sparking something in Jose's brain, and, and we run with it. I kind of want to, right? <laughs> I mean, am I... I, no, I, I, it was effective, and it's just you, you watch something like that, I mean, I, I think we shouldn't take for granted actually whipping the shit out of a bad team this year because we haven't been able to do that as consistently, or at least get the results consistently enough. I, I think it's, you know, I think we're all sort of clawing for hope a little bit to watch something a little more entertaining and something a little more effective. But I don't think it's completely unreasonable, especially like we all, like you said, Ben, we, one of the things that I thought was really noticeable in that back three under Pochettino was how wet. Like, I think that's the best Sanchez has ever played for this team. And I think a lot of that was because he didn't have to do much in that back three. I mean, he had work to do in that back three, but he didn't have to distribute the ball. It was like, give it to Toby, give it to Jan, they'll get it upfield. He he was there to mark guys and dispossess people and get back and defend, Like which is the stuff that he does do very well. So, I, I mean, you know, we've all complained that Sanchez hasn't really developed in the way that I think we all expected him to. So if he hasn't developed, you know, maybe going back to the system where he first thrived in, maybe we'll see something out of him. It's, I don't know. But again, it's against Sheffield, so I don't know how much to take out of it. Well, and I think the important thing that to realize is that if we, now that we play the back three, we'll be able to get the most out of our big money summer signing, Matt Doherty. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I... I, think that's I mean, you're glib. Like, I know you say that as a joke, but, like, it would be very helpful to be able to play Matt Doherty and not feel like, well, we just have this kind of shitty right back who can't defend super well, who's not, like, great carrying the ball forward. You know, if he can actually play that position, then we can, you know, have some reasonable rotation. And that would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, I, I liked it better when I was just being glib. But, yeah, sure, if we want to be real <laughs> honest about it, yeah, why not? Uh, but you know, I'm I think, super serious, Brian. I don't like jokes. Ben, ben, Ben's just here to build teams around Matt Doherty. That's, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I think the other thing we have to take into consideration is, you know, this back three didn't include Sanchez or yeah. Al It didn't include Sanchez. It was it was Dyer, makeshift center back Ben Davis and Joe Rodon, and and Dyer was hurt the first what twenty minutes of the game, thirty minutes of the game, and and eventually shook it off. Um, and I don't know. I just, I, I, w- I was pleased with the way all the center backs played. I mean, I don't think Sheffield United are particularly dynamic in attack and, you know, Ollie McBurney and, uh, what's the other guy? McGoldrick don't do a lot. 
I mean, I mean, they're active, but they're not. I don't know. They're not pacey. They're, they're not tricky. To play, but oh, yeah. okay. It was Oliver Burke, a different Ollie. Different Ollie. My apologies. Sorry. They're all so generic and interchangeable. Yeah, I mean, Ollie. I don't know how I, I didn't realize uh, McBurney didn't play because he looks the most like someone named Ollie McBurney. Um, <laughs> you, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm with Ben. Like, I obviously want Jose Mourinho to be sparked by something to like look at this team and go. I got it. I know the solution. Greg always talks about how Jose Mourinho is good at identifying problems. All right, so we've got problems. Identify the problems and now fix them. Yep. And and so that's not that to date in Jose's management term is has been absent. The fix has been absent. Like he can point to the players didn't do this, we didn't do that. Like this is the problem. They, they don't want it much, bad enough. Like okay, but what are we doing to fix it? Well, it and was if change of formation is the thing, then then all right, let's do that. The thing that, um, maybe, you guys might disagree with me on this, but I, I think the thing that's incredibly frustrating is it's not that Mourinho doesn't have a solution, although it's also that. It's that it feels like sometimes he gets like 70% of the way to figuring it out. Like, you see the shape, you see the idea, you see how it could work on the pitch, and then like either something doesn't go right, or we get fucked up trying to do it, and he just like, crumples up the piece of paper and starts over. He just throws it all away. And it's because I feel like there have been times this year where you can see, and you know, this game is sort of an example of that. But, like, you know, you look at the West Ham matches and um, the, the Man United matches, and, like, there's something there in the way we're playing. And then, like, clearly, you know, something happened. He just started junking shit. He's like, okay, well, we're not going to let our guys get that loose. We're not going to get that far forward. It's just, I don't know. It, it, it just feels like... He's just, he can't figure out that last bit, and he just, you know, throws the baby out with the bathwater in the meantime. I think that is, that's how Jose's entire career has been. I mean, Jose is is a pragmatist, and and everywhere he has gone, whether it is Real Madrid or a second stint at Chelsea or Manchester United, he's talked about opening things up, like... No, I'm not, you know, I'm not the manager that, like, just defended in my first stint at Chelsea or Inter Milan. Like, I've got all these talented players. I'm going to let them play football. And and that happens for a little while. And then you concede a couple of late winners a couple of weeks in a row. And he shuts down all the fun and goes back to trying to grind out 1-0, 2-1 victories. And... I mean, we've shown basically that we're not really capable of grinding out, you know, one nils and two ones this season. So, I, you know, maybe that's the only thing that gets him to change. Maybe, maybe finally his his deep seated pragmatism gets to him and says, "All right, if I'm going to be pragmatic, I have to understand that we can actually not do the most pragmatic thing that I've always accomplished throughout my career, and we just have to do something else." I mean, like, the thing about the word pragmatism is that it's it's bullshit. It's, so it's a like a slur that, in English football, right? Well, like, it's, it's a word that's used to mean, like, defensive football. Even regardless of how pragmatic and effective it actually is. Like, actual pragmatism, you know, means doing, like, the practical thing to yeah. get the result that you want. It doesn't mean just playing defensive football well, because it's defensive it, football. It's... Like, the pragmatic thing to do, sorry, was to stay on the front foot. Like, after we got pegged back... 
you know, hitting them back immediately and staying on the front foot to close out the game. That was, as it turns out, the pragmatic thing to do because it removed their ability to to punish us and peg us back. Like, that's pragmatic. There, there's this difference between... There is a pragmatism in it's the 85th minute, you've got a 1-0 lead, don't open up, you know, lock it down. Like, there's a pragmatism to that. That makes a lot of sense. And you can drag... There's like a point, you know, we could all disagree at what point in the match that goes from pragmatic to stupid but like there is something just as it would make you know you're sitting on a one you know you're drawing to Liverpool in the 92nd minute or you're beating Liverpool by a goal in the 92nd minute just as it is insane to like hey guys let's start bombing down the pitch and like leave ourselves wide open at the back at in that point in time it is equally insane to be like it's the 46th minute we got a one nil lead Guys, this one's in the bag. Like that, like that's insane. That's insane. And you know, it's one thing again if you're playing Liverpool and like, let's be really careful right now in the 46 minute with our one nil lead. You know, there's a difference between that and like just not playing Fulham after halftime. <laughs> right. Like, it may be pragmatic to not play like loose, adventurous, searching balls because you might expose yourself. Doesn't mean it's pragmatic to just stop. Yes. Attacking altogether. You know, it is. There's a just a common refrain, you know, cowardice and like unwillingness to attempt things, and, and being practical are synonymous, and it's just never been the case in and, politics and sports and like in, in anything. Sorry, I got to squeeze that in there for our our one star. Uh, yeah, our one for, star rating for our for our <laughs> deeply left wing politics that always reveal themselves on this podcast. Like Donald Trump was bad, and we're glad he's gone. <laughs> Um, Spurs are just so weak on the right wing. There's they, nothing. They are actually, but I mean, it's it's. I think the Fury. I don't want to get too down on this team right now because they actually had a good week and they didn't do the things we're complaining about this week. But like, you look at this team, you look at these players. Like, you don't have to play like this. We're not Burnley, you know. Like, and you look how good our counter attack is. If you, you mean just, Burnley that beat Liverpool exactly, at Anfield, good point. Good point. We haven't done that this year. But you, but you look at this team, and you look how good our counterattack is on this. So I, don't, don't even make this theoretical. You look how good we are with a counterattack. You open up, you play forward just enough to allow yourself more counterattacking opportunities, which I understand there is an element of danger to that, but there's also an element of danger to letting Liverpool whip your ass in your own half for 45 minutes or whoever. And it's just, anyway, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole because we actually played pretty well this week. But I, again, this was sort of a... I think this was an improved performance from the week before, but I think you could also argue we never reached the heights of the first half against Fulham, where maybe we only scored one goal, but we were really good in that half. I mean, Ben, was this an improvement? I mean, I I think, yes. I think, you know, you can look at the game from a bird's eye view and look at the XG for both games and be like, well, we put up, what is it, like, over three expected goals against Fulham and only scored one. We put up just over one against Sheffield United and somehow scored three. And so I think it's very easy to kind of like look at that high level, you know, analysis of the game and say, well, obviously the better underlying numbers equals the better performance. But I think that really decontextualizes it from both the context of the game and like just the individual moments that happened along the way. You know, the fact is, is despite the fact that we put up like two and a half expected goals of our three expected goals against Fulham in the first half, we ended that half only having scored one goal. So, you know, 
as great as we played up until that point, we didn't give ourselves the room to play the second half the way we did. Like, yes, Fulham only put together about 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 expected goals in response. But, you know, you give a team a half a chance at a goal, and, you know, that's a coin flip that they score it or don't, you know? And they did. And, you know, when you play on such fine margins, it's not enough to have done the underlying work if it doesn't result in the actual thing that matters, which are the goals, you know? Um, and so our response to that first half, as good as it was, was insufficient to get the job done. Whereas this game, you know, we came out and scored insanely early, um, you know, from the first five-minute corner um, that Sun put on Aurier's head. And a Spurs side that we would have seen earlier this season, maybe a few weeks ago, you expect them to go, okay, now we're going to shut up shop and play on the back foot and hope we can maybe nick a second or just hope we can keep them out for 85 minutes. And, you know, that's not how we responded. We kept going in the second half. We kept trying to score and we, we got a second. And then after that, when Sheffield United scored, we didn't say, okay, it's two, one. Now things are getting really nervy. We should close up shop and defend. We kept going and we scored a third goal. And it's like, it's easy to look at that Ndombele chance and be like, well, that was lucky. That was, you know, a very low percentage shot. So, like, how good was it really? And I think if you're going to look at it that way, you're kind of just erasing all of the things that we enjoy about watching soccer. Like, yes, it was an unlikely goal. I think if you just peg, peg it down to luck, you're just you're missing the point. Like, Ndombele scored an amazing goal to seal the game. And that's part of the performance. Like that's a thing that happened. It went in the back of the net. Yeah. Maybe if it didn't, like we'd be singing a different tune. We'd be yeah. Well, if Sun's goal had bounced off the post, you know, it's like if, if, if ifs were butts and hats were ants, you know, it's, it's, but, and I think if you want to look at it the most joyless way possible, we were attacking. That wasn't like, that wasn't like Lloris cleared the ball and it bounced into their net by accident. Like that wasn't, you know, if you want to look at it like, where am I encouraged by Spurs? We were attacking. That was part of an attacking move. Yes, it ended in a really unlikely shot, but it was part of an attacking move. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is Ndombele scored what, I don't know, might be the best Spurs goal I've watched live, as much as I didn't enjoy it at the moment because I was still pissed about the Ravens from the night before. That was an incredible goal. Brian, you look like you're... Not, he has up. no idea where the keeper is. He did not... Oh. 100% he did not know what he was doing there. He's just like, the goal's that way. He absolutely was trying something. I don't think he thought it was going to work. Look, yeah, look, it's a, it's definitely a shot. It's not a cross or anything like that. But he, he has no idea where the keeper is, and he's like, I'm just going to kick it. Well, no, I think that's not true because, like, he knows enough to put that height on it, you know? Like, he he's not just, like, trying to, like, scuff it into the, into the post. He knows enough that he has to get it over the keeper towards the far post. Like, he doesn't have a great idea of, like, where exactly the goal is and where exactly the keeper is, but he has a broad idea of, like, what needs to happen to make a ball go in the net from there. Look, like, absolutely. It's, it's an amazing goal. I, it, like Greg said, one of the best I've seen live. He a thousand percent did not think I, that, that, like, that, I that was not his to believe. Like, that, ah, that I gotta was... get this on goal. 
That was incredible. It was. Can you imagine if like a year? Absolutely. Can you imagine a year ago if I told you guys not only will Ndombele still be on the team, but like he's gonna like score that goal and the team's just gonna have a love fest for him on social media all week. It's like it really. I don't really care how we got here, but the fact is we got here, and I'm very happy we got here. Ndombele is maybe the most important player on Spurs. I don't think that's a huge exaggeration. I mean. There's like two positions we could play him in where he's great at either. He's probably better in the one like we were playing him in midfield than this as opposed to the more attacking role. But either position's good. <laughs> it's really fun I, to watch. I honestly like him better in this deeper role. I, yes. I mean, he, he has... He has so many more opportunities to influence the game and influence the build-up. And, and, and look, like as a number 10, he's great because he, he, he does have good movement. He gets into pockets of space, and he does play those final killer balls. But he, he, he also does that from deep. And then like what you lose by playing him a little further forward is you lose his assistance in transition, really. Um, because when he's playing deeper, he picks up you know, loose balls, um, or he will he will pick up a first pass from the the back three or or, or the back two, um, and, and and start transitioning the ball up the field. Whereas normally it's going to take a couple passes to get to him in the number ten role. And so you know, this is how I prefer Ndombele. Um, you know, if we're playing a three man midfield, I I don't have a problem playing him as a ten. But if we're if we're going to play a, a pivot with him and Hoiberg. Like th- that's ideal, honestly. Yeah. I, I I think that's th- it was just great. It lets him he's set the tempo of the attack too. Like it gives like he's gr- one of the great things about Indombele is how quickly he picks out these passes. But it gives him a little more time to structure what we're about to do, which is nice, I think, especially given how we've played this year. Right. I mean, you said it takes a few passes to find him in a ten spot. That's like if we can even get the ball that far up the pitch. You know, we just we just lack that incisiveness so much when he's not there and, and getting it like every time he touches the ball, it's amazing. Like sometimes it doesn't come off. Yes. But it's always like in service of something that might be amazing. And so like, you absolutely want that guy on the ball as often as possible. Um, and which is why having a third center back behind him kind of makes that honestly ideal. Like if he does give the ball away. You have more protection, you know, to, to let him make those mistakes. And if he doesn't make a mistake, then great. You've just expedited a great counterattack or threaded a ball past, you know, two lines of defense. Like, he's and, you know, I, I think going going back to when Pochettino was here and we didn't realize quite how wrong everything was about to go, I think throughout their tenure at Spurs, we've thought, at least certainly I have, that Lo would be the deeper, would play sort of deeper in midfield and Ndombele would play at least a little further up the pitch. And sort of watching Ndombele in this role, I've kind of changed my mind. Because, I mean, it's worth remembering that, like, Lo Celso earned his transfer fee from Betis playing in a much more forward role. Like, playing as a sort of goal-scoring, you know, like, I mean, honestly, all over the front line or, or, as, or as a 10. And, you know, he's so good on the ball. I kind of, I'd always sort of just thought, okay, we're going to play him in that kind of deeper-lying role where he can set the tempo. But now I'm watching Ndombele do it, like... I think we might be better off if we just sort of, you know, especially because we've talked about how we're looking for that third attacker, no matter where you want to play him. I'm kind of interested to see when he comes back fit, like let Ndombele cook where he's been cooking and just push push Lo Celso up the pitch and let let him do what he was so great at in Spain. 
Brian, oh, you're wow. muted again. You again. Damn it. <laughs> what are you guys could have talked and covered for me? We didn't have to call it out. Every time we call it out. No, we're definitely ridiculous. always calling it out now. Um so I don't I don't even remember. I was got distracted by Sheffield United having a third player on their team named Oliver. Um <laughs> no, so uh um Lacelso I haven't liked Lacelso playing in that like Bergvine esque position. Like there were, there was one game, I think maybe two games where he played. We played a front three that was basically Son, mm-hmm. Kane, and Lacelso, and I, I didn't think Lacelso performed particularly well in either of those games. That's not to say he can't in the future, but I, it hasn't been good so far. Um, but that's also with you know a midfield that had Sissoko in it as well. So I don't know. Um, but but I think. Honestly, the thing that I liked about having the Ndombele in the midfield is it really harkened back to the Musa Dembele midfields that we had, where you have a player who's dynamic on the ball, getting on the ball deeper, and then using his dribbling and passing ability to transition rather than us just knocking a long ball up to Kane and hoping it sticks. And and that has been... Like, just seeing... <laughs> Seeing uh, Ndombele, like, try, like, nutmegs and to split double teams and crush turns, like, 30 yards from our own goal is both, like, heart-in-mouth type stuff, but also very exciting because it's the kind of stuff that he pulls off, the kind of stuff that Dembele pulled off, and it's just, like, it's really good when it comes off. I'll tell you, the thing that gets me about him is just watching him body people off the ball, which, like... I know, like, Kane can get kind of physical, but it, it feels like it's been a while since we've had... I mean, maybe maybe just what I expect in terms of a physical footballer, like, was just ruined by Moussa Dembele, and, you know, I just have unrealistic expectations for what midfielders should be able to do when guys are trying to get the ball off of them, but, like, that... It, it's not exactly, like, what Dembele did when he was here, but just watch it, you know, the way he does that sort of... He receives the ball, holds the guy off, and does that switch, which... I can't believe that's a signature move because that's got to be so hard. I know we've talked about that on this podcast before, but that's what just sort of like it's 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 like coming home. It's like ah yes, this is this is what a midfielder is supposed to do at Tottenham Hotspur. He's supposed to just throw his ass around and knock dudes off the ball while he while he moves us in transition. It's it's fun to watch. He's I'm so happy that it's worked out, and I'm just I'm so Mourinho can claim as much credit for you once. I know he doesn't deserve any of it, but I'm just happy we got here. You know, just listening to this, it's funny that, like, everybody makes the comparison of, to Dembele because obviously their names are similar and in similar ways, but, like... They're also both black. Let's be, let's be real about where some of that's coming from. But, like, I don't see a lot of people comparing him to Luka Modric, which is, like, for me, it's like he is the synthesis of these two players, all of whom, you know, were played more advanced on the pitch, and, like, you had a lot to recommend about playing further forward... And also, when you play them in, in where they actually belong in the center of the park, um, you get the best out of them. But, like, you know, his ability to combine the bell dribbling and Modric's eye for a pass um, and ability to turn out of pressure and, you know, not just through his physicality, but through just, like, a, awareness of, like, space around him. And, like, you know, like, you know, Musa Dembele would just have guys just run into him and just be incapable of, of moving him. And Dombele does that real, like, sexy thing where he, like, you know, shifts his weight, lulls you in, and then pulls past you in a way that is much more similar to, like, the way Luka Modric, you know, moved through midfield 
um, you know, by just evading people and not just like bullying them. And like he can do both. But, yeah, like, it's. I think it's. I think it's just. It's easy to focus on like when he breaks through a guy like a wide receiver shaking off a cornerback. It's like I mean that's just. But you're absolutely right. It's just the physicality just sticks out. Maybe because we watched Dembele play here much more recently. Very recently. Um, yeah. But you're and, and again like Luca. Luca definitely played bigger than his size, but you know his 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 sort of physicality is much more like a terrier who just didn't give up, as opposed to like he wasn't knocking guys on their ass. Um, right, they definitely don't look alike. No, 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 definitely not. But I think that's a very very good point because Dembele could never pass like this. So certainly not this with this kind of consistency. No, without the range, he like he could make a pass because he had just broken through three guys and, like, the field's wide open to him. Yeah. And Dombley will play a guy, pass through, like, three guys like they're not there. Um, and I, I think it's, like, it's, we all see it. It's obvious. It's so sexy. Um, but it gets very left out of, you know, our, our comparisons. And I think mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's unfair. Uh, you're, you're... I also think another reason why, you know, aside from just time that, that, the Modric comparison gets left out is also I, I feel like Modric did a lot of his best like deeper lying midfield stuff a- after he left Spurs mm-hmm. like we had kind of started to transition him into that role and Harry Redknapp was playing him as in in midfield but it was at Real Madrid that he becomes like the best center midfielder in the world you know that well I resent just, that but that's certainly where everyone everyone discovered our hip indie band that we all knew was great. But yes, that's, right. That's but very it's just true. like you know because because we were playing him like as a you know as an advanced playmaker on the left, and then we moved him kind of centrally and like and but yeah, yeah, what so, like two years in central midfield for us, like really maybe a year and a half. Like certainly his last yeah. season here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and so we obviously saw how good it could be, but I don't think we got like the full Luka Modric experience in the same way that we got the full Musa Dembele experience. Um, but right, Martin Gill yeah. did the work of turning him into a midfielder for us. So. Yeah, basically, <laughs> basically, and, and you know, like I, I think Ben's right. I think that is that is a, a great and and very good comparison. That yeah, we we probably don't don't flag up enough, but. I'm just really happy to have him, and the, like Greg said at the beginning, like I, I don't care what the story is ultimately at the end about how it worked out or who gets credit, whether it's Levy's little you know middle school pep talk that he gave him, or whether it's Jose Mourinho, or whether or it's Soko. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't care what the final explanation is. We've arrived at this destination, and and he's every bit as good as he was promised, or as we were promised, and that's all we wanted. I think one of the most exciting things about it, among all the other very exciting things, um, you know, that he gives us on the pitch, is that he is now increasingly playing more minutes. Yep. And that's, for me, like a huge step. You know, we had a huge stretch of the season where it was like he was off at halftime for Los Elso or off at 60 minutes for Los Elso. And, like, yeah, probably some of that has to do with Los Elso being injured and, like, you can't make that easy swap. But so far in 2021, he played 90 minutes against Sheffield, 81 against Fulham. He played 90 against Brentford. He played 80 against Leeds. Like, he played 70 against Wolves. Like, he is increasingly playing the bulk of a match. And having him out there both for our attack and for our ability to just control the tempo of a game for 90 minutes is 
huge. And, like, we've lacked that so many times this season. And this well, is... and I've also thought in Fulham and in this match, he didn't look like he was tiring or slowing down at the end. A few of these matches, they're... he looks like he's gearing up, is it? Is it's it, like once you get past seventieth minute, because because that's been a criticism that's been leveled to him is like that he wasn't ninety minutes fit or they couldn't play ninety minutes, and, and you you could look at the performances on the weekend and you would see him visibly kind of start to slow down the movement decrease from around the sixtieth minute on. So like I can't really fault Jose for yanking him off at that point, but like in the last few matches, he's been able to run or you know to to do all the things he needed to do for the full 90 minutes and he i i haven't seen that sort of slowdown i haven't seen you know an increase in sloppy passes or errors in the last 30 minutes so like i have to think that he's now just finally getting fully fit well and one of the things that i think is really encouraging about all this is like there seemed to be some, a lot of pressure from indombole to be like you know, certainly as, as we got into the winter of like, hey, I want to play more minutes. Stop taking me off so early. And that this got resolved with, at a minimum, no external drama that we could all see is massively encouraging that, you know, like he and Mourinho had a disagreement and it didn't blow up in public. Now, I don't want to give anyone too much credit for this because this like, that's how Mourinho, that's how any manager should be handling something like this. But that it happened that way is massively encouraging and really nice to see. And yeah, I don't know. A player like Ndombele is so good because he can just really... I feel like he can make any type of sort of system work in midfield, which is why it's so nice to have him. And the fact that we could play him in all these different positions and he can succeed in any of them, it's just... God, it's so much fun to watch. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's other guys who had good games too. <laughs> I know we all love Ndombele and and love talking about him because he's just before we get off in Dombele, like Brian talked about it a little bit Ben and I mentioned it but like where's this rank for you in Spurs goals that 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 goal he scored is 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 that the best goal you've seen by a Spurs player I mean I know I'm putting you, you on the spot here but like the goals that immediately come to mind are like Eric Lamella's Rabona like you know Kane's goal from an insane angle against Arsenal um you know, I don't know. We've seen a lot of good goals, but Deli Alley against Palace. I mean, yeah, Deli against Palace. This might be the most. It's it's kind of like a midfield chip, but just much more. He meant it's audacious it. Audacious and unlikely yeah. in a way that, like, you know, even Harry Kane's like goal from a wide angle. It's like it's Harry Kane. You know, he's got that kind of thing in his locker. You know, he's looking exactly for that shot. Where, yeah, you're right. Maybe there's a little debate over what exactly Ndombele was trying to do, but it's like. Nobody would try that. Like, the Harry Kane goal is a goal that you try. You know, if you're a good striker, like, yeah, you make an effort there. There's, like, maybe two other people in the history of the game who attempted this shot that he attempted there, um, you know, with any level of, of deliberation. And that, to me, is just is just wild. I'm like, I just love that audacity. I'm surprised you didn't mentioned the uh you know the puskas award winning hungerman sun goal from last season honestly it was whatever <laughs> yeah that's kind of how I, feel. I mean the 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 goal itself is whatever yeah, the shot isn't impressive it's the it. run it's the run that's impressive and now spurs are going to win the puskas award two years in a row isn't that great all right so i'm gonna like <laughs> i'm gonna talk shit about the sun goal not talk shit about it like but it's like he just kind of runs in a straight line like, he doesn't beat a man. He doesn't, like, do a lot he of... He beats a lot anything. of men. Like, I mean... He just runs past them. And it is largely because 
Burnley do a terrible job defending him and like misreading his acceleration as it is like anything spectacular Sun does. Like it's it's a it's marvelous to run that far up the field with the ball. Like it's a very rare thing to happen, but uh, there's no flair to it. There's nothing like I, I, like, I wouldn't go I wouldn't go that far, but but who who was I mean, like Ben's right? He doesn't do like six stepovers and then he like gets roll his somebody. ankle broken like, like four like, times. Like, come on, guys, let's okay, not let's not. Like, he doesn't get tackled. Is not like oh. the thing that's like setting my pulse rate. So, like Messi's half field goal, Maradona's half field goal. You know, with those runs, like they're actually like juking guys out of their boots. Like they're I, I they're will say players. Like I will say when, when, fails, I, like, when I think of Son's goals, I I think of the him ruining Pepe Reina's life. With a broken arm against Aston Villa last year. Before I think of that one for some reason, but who else do you think had a good performance in this in this match, Ben? Um, I mean, I think you know the fullbacks. It was nice to see them back to their best, but Steven Bergvine for me, I think, is a guy that has gotten a lot of grief from us, from Spurs fans, um, and. You know, I think we've we've all seen a lot in his locker, uh, even if he hasn't quite put it together. And every week now, you kind of feel like he's sort of inching towards becoming the kind of contributor we we hoped he would be. Um, you know, in this match, he created two chances. He had two shots. He was a reliable outlet for you know balls out of the back. He was he just felt like he was in sync with the attack in a way that he hasn't been. Um, a lot this season, and I, I, I thought it was really encouraging for him and for us to see him take that step. Yeah, I thought Bergvine was good, and I also thought that that um, the center back, I thought Rodon and and Dyer were both really good in this match. Um, you know, Rodon is someone that none of us really knew a lot about in terms of you know none of us had really seen him play. Um, he was coming up from the championship. You know, he was coming from Swansea, so we knew he's a, you know, capable on the ball, but didn't really have any other insight into what his level was or or how good he was. And I think pretty much in every match he's played this season, he's been solid. Um, I can't think of him, you know, you know, the the I kind of am measuring his relative merits against Juan Foyth who is still on our books, technically. You know, like, Juan Foyth has had some good games, but then there's also, what, the Wolves match where he gives away a penalty and... or two penalties? I don't don't remember. He gave away a bunch of penalties. Um, So, you know, I I feel like Rodon has been... steady, if unspectacular, but certainly I think he has a physical presence that... Especially in the air that none of our other center backs really have. Like I think I think Davin Sanchez is strong and he's fast, but I don't think he's particularly good in the air. I don't think he wins a lot of headers or he anything. Needs glasses. Yeah, <laughs> he, he very well might honestly. But I think Rodon does give us that in that in that he is both very tall and also very good in the air. And especially against a team like Sheffield United, that was really useful. And I thought he played really well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last time we saw. Oh no! Other than other than his performance against Chelsea, other than his performance against Chelsea, where he had a couple bad moments against 
you know, they're admittedly pretty decent front line. And, you know, it's like you said, Brian, he's a player coming from the championship. I think we can forgive that. But I think so far, I think your Foyth comparison is very good because we all loved Juan Foyth on here because he knew how to pick a pass. But that guy led to, I mean, he made mistakes that led directly to goals, which is, I know why Ben's about to argue he should have always been a defensive midfielder where those mistakes are further away from the goal. But the point is, Juan Foyth was awfully sloppy for a central defender, and I think the early returns on Rodon are very promising. Yeah, no, I was going to say the exact same thing, uh, honestly. <laughs> like, coming from, from, like, the last time we really saw him was Chelsea, where he was a little ropey, but I thought, you know, credited himself pretty well, and I was very pleased with his debut. And in just, you know, he, his other game was against Marine, which doesn't count. So, you know, his now second real start, I think all the jitters that led to, like, those, like, ropey mistakes against Chelsea seem to have been put behind him. Like, he just looked very composed. And for a guy making his second Premier League start, um, I was, yeah, super pleased. It's kind of weird because usually the the young guys we buy are either sort of, like, immediate starters. We know they're going to be there, like Sergio. Or they're these, like, youth projects that just sort of, like, get these half-assed starts every now and then for, like, a couple of years before we sell them at a loss, like in Kudu or something. And, I don't know, Rodon seems to be somewhere in the middle of that. I mean, uh, we seem to be willing to give him actual important backup minutes, and my guess is that's only going to continue to increase over the season, especially if Sanchez keeps looking like he's looked. And we're also going to be able to register him for the Europa League. Um for the second half of the season. And so that'll be nice to be able to give him minutes there if we can't fit him into the Premier League uh, schedule. It'll, it'll be nice when he starts against Wolfsburg's non-union Austrian equivalent. That's right. And, I mean, the other good thing about him is he is um, he, he does, I believe, count as um, homegrown in the sense that he is trained in the U.K., he isn't homegrown at the club, but like so, there's that that's important for your UEFA stuff. And his he age, doesn't right? count in the Europa League, but he does count domestically. Yeah, uh, yes, that's right. Right, Swansea doesn't count for. for so, but the important thing, and and we can always shift him. Like, there's always demand for you know in the Premier League for good. He's not English, but you know, British people, center backs, defenders, <laughs> football Maybe. players in general. I don't know. There was a point when I started talking, and then I lost it, and then so um, we wound up here, guys. Um, but there's always a premium on players like that, on on British players. There's always a premium on them, and so while we may have to let a player like one fourth go for you know a discounted price, there's all you can always tack an extra five to ten million on the on the price tag for a British player. Thank you, Brexit. Uh, <laughs> so I guess one thing I. Maybe, maybe a negative that I want to ask about is what does this mean for Toby? Um, I, think it, I don't think it means anything for Toby. I mean, Toby is aging. I think he's going to give us a solid another year or two, and then he's going to get, as that goes on, he's going to slowly get phased out of the team. Pro, you know, injuries will probably determine how quickly that goes, but, you know, Toby's been not, not Toby, I, I feel, maybe you guys disagree with me on this. I feel like Toby has not been his best self this year, but I don't regret signing him to that contract. I don't think he's been bad. I, I mean, yeah. you know, like if you were going to ask me to tell to, to you know to pick out our best center back this year, I'm st- I think I would still pick him out. I think Eric Dyer has seated him this season. I think Eric Dyer has played fairly well. 
Um, I think but, Eric Dyer yeah, has I exceeded mean, his own expectations, and that is maybe why we regard him a little more positively. Yeah, I mean, that could be. But but I think, you know, overall, with Toby, like you said, Greg, I, I think I don't regret giving him the contract. I think he still has another good season or two. I think he still plays a very important role in this team. I think his ball progression is still hugely important to this team, and, and we obviously very much miss it when we're playing a back four and he's not out there. Um, you know, That's one thing that this back three did allow us to do a little better is not have to rely on him playing long diagonals. Um, so so I, I, I think Toby's been fine this year. I, I, I you know, I don't think that Rodon and Davis playing in this back three means anything for Toby, other than that we also have guys that we know can fill in at center back if they need to. Well, he's only played 45 minutes of our last four matches, which is why I asked the question. Um, I mean, yeah, you're. I think you're right. Like, having a transition plan to move beyond Toby is necessary. Um, it's just, I guess I'm just a little surprised to see it happening maybe right now. It'd be, not, it'd be nice. He's a little bit injured. I don't know, has he? Yeah, I just always assume he is a little bit injured. But it would be <laughs> nice if Rodon turns out to be an actual transition player. Like, if it works out that way, um, bet, you know, better than it did with Juan Foyth. Uh, it would be very nice if Spurs were that were that smart. Um, unless, do you guys have anything else to talk about with this match? Any other Any other hot takes you want to get out there? I don't. There aren't. Sheffield so. United are going to get relegated. Oh, Brian with Mark the, it down. Brian with a red hot take. So speaking of players in decline, maybe uh, the Christian Eriksen links have gotten a lot stronger this week. Now, I don't know if that's because they're real or that's just because Christian Eriksen's agent doesn't have a whole lot of ideas. It could be both. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but given that this is the most realistic it's ever seemed, I think it's worth a little bit more of a deep dive from us. I mean, Christian Eriksen has not looked good for, I want to say, consistently looked good for, what, like two years now? Is that fair? Two calendar years? The charitable interpretation of this is he was tired at Spurs and wanted out. He... Event fell out with Conte eventually, or Conte doesn't like him, or whatever, which is weird because Conte played against him and presumably sanctioned his purchase. And he's just had sort of a bad run of luck, and now he wants to come back to a team where he knows he's comfortable, a team where he knows he's wanted, and he'll be back to his best self. But he's 28, I believe. I, I, almost I know, 29. Oh my god! <laughs> well, he's 28 until he's 29. But I, I think for me, I, I know that like. Me being the sort of bitter ex over Erickson is a bit of a bit on this podcast and on Twitter.com, but I don't know. I, I mean, if he's at, a bit. if he's at his best, I, I wouldn't mind seeing him back. I'm just, it's been two years, and even if there's a perfectly good explanation, that's still two years, and that's not even getting into what we have to pay him. So, I mean, Brian, how do you feel about a potential reunion with Christian Erickson? I, I, I don't want him back. Like, I, I just. Of all the players that have left, he would be the one that I'm least interested in coming back just because, like you said, it's been on a two-year run where he hasn't been great. He's on even bigger wages now. And I just don't think with the squad as constructed right now, he does a lot to solve some of the glaring problems that we have. 
you know, I, I think I don't think he gives us anything that makes us play Sissoko less. I don't think he solves the right wing issue, um, even though he could certainly play on the right wing. Um, it, so I just I, I I don't see how it makes business sense for Daniel Levy because he, he he's not going to have any sell on value if he comes back here. Um, and if it's a loan, then I guess maybe it makes a little bit of sense. But if we if we're buying him back, like he's now here, like he's a Spurs player on a big contract, and you know, does he become a Mesut Ozil type figure at the club? Like I don't know. So I mean, I think the rumors are for a loan, and if that loan is for just this season, I can see how it kind of does solve some problems, like. If Ndombele can't play in central midfield because Jose wants a guy like Ndombele's creativity in that 10 spot, well, Christian Eriksen suddenly gives you that guy while freeing Ndombele to play deeper. You know, if Bergvine's brief renaissance is just just an anomaly and he's going to go back to playing as the kind of unproductive player he has been, you know, Having Christian Eriksen in that spot was probably an upgrade, at least in the short term. Um, you know, he he fell out with Conte at Inter, but before he did, he was playing just like old Christian Eriksen. Like he had goals and assists and was like a, a real contributor. It, it you know, looked like he was starting there. to. It looked like he was really starting to fit into that team, but yeah, it, I mean, he for didn't. For a minute there, it was like. He, he had like you know Lukaku and Lautaro Martinez like running off of him, and he was able to play those like Christian Eriksen passes up to them, you know, on on quick counters in a way that like you can really see how that passing would be great, um, you know, with Kane and Son in the form that they're in, um, you know, having a guy facilitate behind them like Christian Eriksen would be great. I I I don't know. It's like if we're signing him on a permanent contract with his wages, with his history, like it's, I love Christian Eriksen, but it seems like a bad idea. If it's a loan for 18 months, you know, again, it's like, well, I think for this season, there's some utility, but why, why not just sign somebody real in the summer? If like, that's what you want. Well, you especially know, when we're, we'll be fit again. We're, we're know, linked like, to a real midfielder in the summer too. So. Yeah. So like, in the universe of buys, it's like I would rather get a Sabitzer, get a, a Sangare, whoever we might be linked with to play, and not necessarily the same position, but just a guy who plugs an obvious starting eleven role and allows us to shuffle around them and make the squad of guys that we have kind of work a little more harmoniously. That to me sounds like what we should be angling towards doing. If that's not on the cards. You know, Christian Eriksen might be the difference between top four and not top four. He might be the difference between winning a trophy and not winning a trophy. You know, we look at, like, the squad as a whole and, like, Lucas and Lamella, as much as I love him, um, Deli, Finicius, like, they're just not getting minutes. They're not doing a ton when they get those minutes. Like, we need good attacking players on this team. And whatever the circumstances might be, Christian Eriksen has a potential to be a better attacking player than what we've got. You know, Gareth, it could be Gareth Bell 2.0, yeah. who's also done nothing. You know, I, it, I don't discount that possibility, but... It feels like, to me, and again, again I, I might be... You can rationally tell me why 
Erickson hasn't lost too much. But it feels like talking yourself into something when, when we talk about this. And I guess the problem for me is, if you, if, like Brian was talking about selling value, if I could be promised, if I, like, you know, this would be a deal with the devil and you were being offered this, and like Christian Erickson's going to be back at that level that he was at at Spurs for like two to three years if you sign him and you're going to have to eat a bad year or two, you know, I might take that deal. But at the end of the day, and again, it's not a sure thing, but neither is this, you know, I, I kind of agree with what you said, Ben. It's just like, let, let's. You know, it's Erickson doesn't fill that super obvious hole. I mean, we could use him if Christian Erickson's good. There's definitely places we could use him, but it doesn't feel fill a super obvious hole. And I'd rather go like get a young, good player who sort of fills a need at Spurs, and especially with. I mean, it sounds like Sabitzer is definitely coming here. I know Sabitzer isn't like 22 or anything, but he's not 28 or 29. So. <laughs> Until he is. 29, 29 next month. So, yeah. You know. Sabitzer's like 25, right? I don't know. 26. Uh, what I said. Still. But it's just, I don't know. I'd rather go out and get like, it's just, I don't know. Like, I would love to have Christian Erickson come back and like end his Spurs tenure on a much happier note. I just, that feels like unlikely to me. I think there's more going on here than just Conte's a lunatic. Which, to be fair... We know Conte's a lunatic, but well, like he's not the only guy we want to get from Inter who's fallen out with Conte. Like yep. Skriniar was linked with us all summer after falling out with Conte, and we were still pretty high on that. So, you know, you never know. Uh, yeah, but we didn't have to watch Skriniar suck for us for about eight yeah, months. Sure. So. But I think also part of it is like having talked ourselves into Gareth Bale and seeing that go badly. It makes it a little harder to talk ourselves into Christian Eriksen and expect a different result. You know. Even though he's younger and hasn't had his career disrupted by injuries and misery in, in Madrid, like there's a lot of reasons to expect it would work out a lot better than, than Bale has. And, you know, if you think a eighty percent Gareth Bale would have been the difference between where this team is right now and like something really exciting to dream on, an eighty percent Christian Erickson from two years ago isn't far off from that, frankly, in terms of what he could give us. So you know, if it's a short-term loan deal, yeah. If, like, it's, if it doesn't happy. hand, if it's entire hands, sure. But like, I don't know. It's just like, I, like and there is a part of me like I joke about fuck Christian Eriksen for giving up on us. But like, man, if he came back and he was terrible, like if he turned into like Brian said, Mesut Ozil, like you know, just like a, a waste of space on a huge contract that limits our ability to sign other players, like. Man, that would that would be even less fun than watching him like sort of dog it through his last few months at Spurs. And he's like when we brought Robbie Keane back, it was just like he, you know, he left us acrimoniously to go to his boyhood club of Liverpool and you know, found his way back at Spurs and just just sucked. Just and it was sad to see. You know, Bale it's less sad to see cuz it's, it's been so long and we know all he's been through. Robbie Keane was like in a similarly like very short-term situation. Harrison, and it was just not pretty. Well, and unlike Bale, who I feel like was always a bit of a luxury purchase this summer, even if in the best of possible worlds it was a luxury item, you know, I think we'd expect, if we bought Erickson, you know, you're expecting production, especially after Bale. So, I don't know, I just don't feel like doing this again. I, I don't I don't want to have him back. I just, you know, you can't date your exes again. It's not a good idea. 
I mean, we dated Defoe again, and he was amazing for us when he came back. You know, like I think that's the exception that proves the rule. Man, that's the exception. You know, we brought back Peter Crouch as a former youth prospect that we let go. We brought back. Eunice Kabul. This is all the same summer. Pascal Chimbanda. So if we could buy him in 2000, if we could buy him in 2009, that sounds like a great idea. If Harry Redknapp was in charge, I think we would sort this out no problem. If Nico Cranchar is available, that's what I want to see. Where's 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 Troy Luca these days? Where's Troy Luca? Let's just get the whole band back together. Let's like Spurs nostalgia eleven. Let's do this thing. Alan Hutton's doing Sky Sports stuff now, so I'm sure he's really. Yeah. Ugh. Is he about Alan? Is he bad? I, I he's Scottish, so probably. <laughs> God. Uh, do we have uh, Wickham's an FA Cup match? I don't think we need to really focus on that. Um, and I they probably... are bottom of the championship. They are very bad. Well, good thing for them. Doctor Tottenham's on the way. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts about us going into the Liverpool match next week? We play them on Thursday, a week a week from today, even. I uh, mean. I hope we win. Yeah. Is Klopp as bad as Mourinho now? Klopp is worse than Mourinho. Yeah, I I, I feel like Klopp's off-field antics are really wearing on. And I know part of that's because I just fucking hate Liverpool and everything, their whole bullshit mystique. But, like, I think Klopp is every bit as bad as Mourinho, the rat Mourinho gets in the press. And that's not to excuse Mourinho. I just think Klopp just gets such a free ride. I think a lot of the reason why I like Klopp less is because I feel like Mourinho is very self-aware about it. And and yeah. the things he does are very calculated, whereas Klopp's things are much done in much more earnest and just like he firmly believes the thing that he's saying rather than that he is playing you know, mind games or he's Arsene Wenger pretending he didn't see a particular thing. Like, I, I feel like Klopp is just being much more earnest about everything and that just makes it much more, like, gross. Yeah, that earnestness is like, it's it's the whole thing, right? It's like, his earnestness bought him that credit with the media because they found him so open and so refreshing and so, you know, what a real manager and, like, you know, Look at all that of grin. that, like, fucking... Odious shit that he and Liverpool have as a package, but the flip side of that is like the fucking evil, dark, shitty Klopp that's like just as cynical and just as gross as Jose Mourinho, just absolutely decoupled from any sense of self awareness. And the media, you know, with Jose, it's like he and the media are we're all playing a game together. Yeah, we all know our parts. I'm gonna be an asshole. You're gonna, you know, ask your questions. We're all gonna have a fucking good time about it, even though we're all kind of miserable. With with Klopp, it's there's none of that. It's just he's a shithead. And the media is still clinging to that ideal of this, like, sweet Ernest Klopp and, like, are just carrying so much water for him and why these antics are just a product of, like, a passionate man as it becomes increasingly more transparent that it's all just just this fucking sad, miserable sack seeing, you know, his, his team incapable of reaching the heights that they've reached in the last few years. And it's... It's awesome to watch him just fall apart like that and like to yell at like fucking Sean Dyche in the title. Like, come on, man. Like, the, the best part, you, the best part of that yourself. was he, he goes down, he chases Sean Dyche down the tunnel, like trying to just square up to him. And then it's like when Arson Banger tried to square up to Martin Yell, like Dyche turns around and like actually confronts him. And you just immediately see Klopp back off because he knows he doesn't want any pieces. You know, he doesn't want to eat any worms tonight. Don't want so. that smoke. 
<laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just watching him sort of, I don't know, I can't wait for, like, Klopp to be managing, like, Lazio in, like, ten years as he, like, eats up, like, you know, devours his own guts and consumes his own legacy, and it's just, oh, he's such just a fucking obnoxious piece of shit, and I'm, oh, I hate him so much. Anybody who has those, like, pretensions of being, like, above the game and better than it all and, like, pure somehow than, like, the obvious, like, gross shenanigans that all managers engage in, it's just it's just inevitably going to come home to roost and make you look like an asshole. It, and to Jose's credit, like, he has never pretended anything other than, like, he is what he is. It honestly makes me respect Mourinho more. I'm not saying I like it more, but... It, like, like you guys said, this, there's there's always been a certain level of self awareness with Mourinho, where he understands what and why he's doing. Like, you know, he could like you watch all those like press conferences that he gave, like about Barcelona when he was at Real Madrid. I, like, he understood what he. It's like watching a pro wrestling character. He understands what he's doing. Whereas with Klopp, you think he actually believes this shit, and it's like, or at least, you know, we're all treating him like he like he's earnest when it's just. This gross, self-serving, cynical horseshit, and the fact that it's the same garbage that we decry in football all the time, and it's we're we're being treated like it's some breath of fresh air. It's just, oh god, I fucking hate him so much. He looks like a fucking muppet. He doesn't Muppets look like a fluffy uncle. He, he, he looks like a fluffy uncle muppet. Come on, fluffy uncle muppet. All right, yeah. He's like Fozzie Bear's like alt right. Uncle or something. I don't know. Steals hubcaps. Let's just go. Let's <laughs> oh. go all in. <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> you guys are taking it way. way <laughs> on that note, I think it's time to wrap it up. Uh, ben, where can our one-star reviewer find you on Twitter.com? Yeah, you can find me, surprisingly, at Comrade U Spurs um, on Twitter. Yeah, please leave us a five-star review because we have to counter review one star reviews of these fucking morons yes and it's as, as Tottenham's most political podcast we, we really need <laughs> Brian where can where, where can people find your Marxist analysis of Tottenham Hotspur on twitter.com yeah you can find me on twitter at Brian underscore Ashlock that is Brian with a Y and of course you can see me telling you how Bakunin explains Tottenham Hotspur at skipjack0079 and don't forget to follow our podcast feed w- at WDR Podcast. That's WDR as in Wheeler Dealer Radio. For Ben, for Brian, and of course for Brett Rainbow, I have been your host, Greg. Thank you for joining us, and come on, you Spurs. <laughs>